0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the war in Ukraine entering its third month as the Russian offensive in the East appears stalled, and speak with Michael Weiss, News Director at New Lines Magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel held Syria and war torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence services' ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. He's the author of The Menace of Unreality How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and his latest article at New Lines magazine is exclusive. Sergei Lavrov and Oleg Deripaska traveled with a sex worker to Japan in 2018 and how Putin's Russia has devolved into a mafia state in which not just men who have fallen out of favor with the Godfather are killed, but whole families are butchered. Then we'll assess the fallout from the taped conversations between House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and the Republican House leadership that reveal a completely different picture to the public face of the groveling fealty GOP leaders feel they must show to Trump while privately despising him. Joining us is Tom Lobianco, a national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly a Washington correspondent for Business Insider who covered Trump and the Republican Party, a long-time reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House, For the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star, his latest article at Yahoo News is Ohio Republicans pick sides as primary battle for U.S. Senate race enters final stretch, and we will discuss whether McCarthy will pay a price for being a liar and a coward. Then we'll get an update on the French presidential elections and go to Paris to speak with David Andelman, a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a chevalier of the French Legion of Honour. He is the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. Formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, he runs the substack blog Andelman Unleashed, where he has been covering the French election. Then finally, we'll examine the shakeup among streaming services. With Netflix projected to lose another 2 million subscribers in the next quarter as its market capitalization shrinks from 300 billion in November to 97 billion, and CNN Plus is about to be shut down after just being launched in March. Joining us is Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced movie who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Corsese, Vim Venders, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He was the founder of Entertainer, the first streaming video-on-demand platform in 1996, and is the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book is The Magic Ears, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate, or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Joining us now is Michael Weiss, who's the news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe, and he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Isis Inside the Army of Terror. And his latest article at New Lines Magazine is exclusive. Sergei Rolovrov and Oleg Deripaska Traveled with Sex Workers to Japan in 2018. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Weiss.
1: Thank you, Ian. I have to say, that is a very fulsome introduction, and it ended on a a quite provocative and high note, so thank you for that.
0: (laughs) Well, well, you know, some of the stuff in your article, particularly um, Lobanova, the sex worker that traveled with Dara Pasca to Japan along with Lavrov, I don't even know, they can even read her advertisement of herself. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, we, uh, we we partnered in this investigation with uh, Christo Grozov of Bellingcat, uh, the guy who unmasked the GRU assassins, and, or attempted assassins of um, uh, Sergei and Yulia Skripal, as well as the FSB assassins, or Novichok artists of uh, Alexei Navalny. And as he put it to me on Signal, he's never had to wade through so much pornography before in pursuit of in a journalistic investigation. So spare a thought for poor Christo there. <laughs> he's doing... Uh, He's doing the Lord's work on our behalf.
0: Well, but I can't imagine that too many people, although some do, have illusions still about Putin. I mean, the idea that it's not a mafia state, I mean, my God, it is so clear that this behavior, particularly with Lavrov, you know, there's always been an assumption that in the foreign ministry there's some professionalism, but the the cross-pollination between Corrupt oligarchs and high-ranking officials is is completely the, the line is now was blurred before and now it's just completely crossed. So if yeah. you com- if you combine what you have in your article, uh, what it indicates, along with the the recent deaths of uh, high-ranking executives in the gas business, with Vladislav Ivayev of Gazprom found dead, with along with his wife and daughter. Uh, and then, almost at the same time in Spain, Sergei Praticeña, uh he was found dead with his wife and daughter. I mean, the Italian mafia used to just kill the, the man, right? They never killed the family.
1: Well, and also that, I, I mean, let's assume that these were not, um, you know, what they've been portrayed as in the press, which is that two oligarchs under eerily similar circumstances butcher their families, one with a pistol, the other I think with an axe, and then um, set upon themselves and commit suicide. Let, let, let's assume for a moment that this is some act of foul play, and and it's linked to the geopolitical situation or to internal dynamics in Russia. Um, yeah, going after the family is actually um, an unusual escalation on the part of of the Putin regime. I mean, famously. When Putin arrested Mikhail Khodorkovsky, then Russia's wealthiest man, um, one of the, the sort of most influential oligarchs in the country, there was a policy in place, unwritten and unspoken, I suppose, that you know don't target the family. So the family, the mother, was allowed to live in Russia. Uh, the son, who is actually a personal friend of mine, um, moved to America and started a life here. So this is this is something new, um, and is something that kind of harkens back to the Soviet era where. You know, family members were essentially held hostage in order that people did not become defectors or betray the regime. Um, And in this case, yeah, I mean, if if what you and I are probably thinking is true, they might have been offed uh, as some kind of, mm, I don't know, not just punishment, but deterrent um, capability. In other words, don't even think about turning your back on us. You know, we've allowed you to ride high on the hog and make all this money over the last 20 odd years And now it's time to, um, you know, we we need a return on our investment. So you have to rally around the flag. You have to take up the cudgel on behalf of the regime and it's war in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't, well, you know, you you see what can happen to you.
0: So is Putin getting desperate or, I mean, the assumption is that things aren't going well for him in in Ukraine. And apparently, according to British intelligence, this latest offensive in the Donbass is stalled yeah, and striking out at Odessa with a missile, killing a three-month-old baby and mother. I mean, what's that all about?
1: Well, I mean, this is just the Russian way of war. The you know indiscriminate bombardment, no attempt to uh, disambiguate military from civilian targets. Actually, no, I, I shouldn't say that. Um, I I was in Ukraine a few weeks ago and I, I toured a town called Borodenka, which is northeast of Kiev, um, sort of seen as a commuter suburb. A lot of people who work in the capital live there. So, in a good day, about an hour's drive back and forth, took us three hours to get there because, well, on, on the one hand, the Russians had blown up certain uh, arteries connecting Kododanka to Kiev, including a bridge that you needed to cross. On the other hand, a lot of people returning from western Ukraine or from outside the country to Kiev because Kiev is now relatively secure. But what I noticed in this town Ian, is there's no military infrastructure of which to speak. There, there are no air bases. You know, I mean, you know, there, there had been territorial defense. There had been the Ukrainian army. But what the Russians did is they conducted airstrikes on apartment blocks. And several of these buildings, I mean, uh, in, in essence, ceased to exist. they just the, the, the center of them has been reduced to rubble. Uh, and there were people who we knew at the time, because the emergency services were there removing the rubble, who had simply been buried under the the tonnage the weight of the steel and concrete that collapsed on top of them so i think they've they've recovered something like 40-odd bodies from buddhjenka but this was not you know um unlike bucha where they conducted summary executions and you, know, you saw the video the footage of, of bodies strewn throughout the street as the ukrainians were rolling in we didn't see corpses but in a weird way it was slightly more menacing for that fact because You know, as I say, people were interred more or less upon the moment of their murder. And these were specifically Russian airstrikes. We had one eyewitness who told us, I think it was March, the morning of March 1st, two rockets that were shot by Russian jets impacted the apartment. And the force of the blast was such that the personal belongings of the the residents of those apartment buildings were found strewn across the street in a park, which is sort of the the, the main centerpiece of Wodudyanka. Um, And I saw everything from stuffed animals, belonging to children, to toiletries, to we found one young girl's diary, which was still more or less intact and and legible. Um, Just absolute savagery. Um, And and I should add to this, that the apartment buildings that weren't destroyed by airstrikes, that were still standing, we went inside one of the buildings. And we noticed that every flat had been looted and ransacked by Russian occupiers. Uh, Jewelry boxes had been emptied. Gratuitous acts of defilement. I mean, they, they went through the, the photo album of one young couple and they took their wedding photos and they just tossed them about the, the bedroom. Uh, one Russian soldier um, defecated on um, one of the apartment uh, occupants' uh, bathrobes in the middle of the kitchen. It was sort of this bizarrely staged scene of desecration of somebody's home. and uh, Somebody who, by the way, the, the Russian soldier would have never met. So just did this wantonly as a, as a sort of a special FU, I suppose. Um, we managed to get in touch by the way with that couple. Uh, the husband is now serving in the, uh, in the Ukrainian military in the West and we recovered the wedding photos and some other keepsakes just to let them know that these things wouldn't sort of be lost. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's absolutely brutal behavior. It's inhuman behavior. Um, and you know, the Russian military seems a lot better at stealing washing machines. And dishwashers and toilets uh, than they do at fighting a what, what had been considered to be a, a vastly inferior army, but which has comported itself rather extraordinarily um, in the last two months. And, I mean, as I say, has liberated all of Kiev Oblast and is holding the line quite well in Donbass, which is, from what I gather and from what I've heard from military analysts, you know, Putin has not got much time to achieve whatever remains of his objectives. And the, the, the sort of the last hurrah, if you like, will be to try and carve out uh, this Donbass strategy of occupying more territory than they took in 2014, creating a land bridge that would connect occupied Crimea to Russian Federation territory, which would, of course, involve involve taking all of Mariupol, which the Russians seem to have given up on because the Ukrainians are still holding out at the Azovstal uh, metallurgic uh, factory, which encompasses, I think, four Square miles of territory in the port city of Mariupol. So yeah, you're quite you're quite right that Putin things are not going well for him, and things are seen to be not going well for him, including inside Moscow and in his own regime.
0: So can he declare some kind of cosmetic victory for the May 9th uh, Victory Day?
1: Uh, you know, this date has been bandied about because it. Uh, as you say, the Victory Day—the day that the, the the Red Army defeated Nazi Germany—I um, don't know if he's going to adhere so closely to that that date. Uh, it is true that Putin fancies himself a historian, puts a lot of weight into these sort of symbolic dates. You'll recall that the announced invasion, or the, excuse me, the special military operation, as it was known, happened on Army Day. So it would be, a, I suppose, a, a fitting bookend to have it—the the cessation of that operation be on Victory Day, but. Do I think the Russians are going to stop fighting on May 9th? No. And more to the point, are the Ukrainians going to stop defending their territory and pressing counteroffensives on, counter-offensives on May 9th just because this is Putin's, you know, um, brooded end of the war? No, of course not. So I, I wouldn't put too much stock in in that. I think this is going to drag on for, for many more months. Um, but the question is, have the Russians got the manpower, the firepower, the morale, the logistics? Um, and, and frankly, just the, the ability to manufacture more kit, And that's the real issue here. I mean, uh, the deputy defense minister of Ukraine told me this week, in fact, that of all the aircraft or, or simply airborne munitions that have been shot down by the Ukrainians, this includes cruise missiles, unmanned aerial vehicles and flat uh, fixed wing and rotary uh, wing uh, aircraft, 90 percent, quote, 90 percent of the electronics. Are not manufactured in Russia, they're manufactured in the United States and Europe, which is to say that sanctions will take a bite out of Russia's military industrial complex.
0: So, just in the last minute, then, Michael Weiss, the Russians, of course, are blockading the Black Sea. So, they effectively have made Ukraine landlocked. They can't, there's no way to get imports and exports out. So, will they continue that, in other words, the stranglehold, even if they lose? militarily on the ground yeah
1: I mean and that, that's absolutely a concern and you know the maritime trade I forget what the percentage of, of Ukraine's GDP is based on that but it's, it's a pretty sizable percentage but as so long as the international community or whatever the you know the term of art you'd like to use the, the Western liberal order is is propping up Ukraine economically um, the Ukrainians have time more on their side than the Russians do on theirs um, Look, you know, in order to achieve the objectives that um, the Russian general staff have laid out, they would need to seize Odessa. Now, you alluded to a, a cruise missile or two cruise missiles striking apartment blocks in Odessa, killing three-month-old baby and her, her mother. Um, do I think that the Russians can mount an amphibious assault on Odessa, particularly now that they lost their flagship vessel, the Moskva? Um, of the Black Sea fleet to Ukrainian uh, anti ship missiles? No, I don't think so. Odessa would be much harder for them than Mariupol, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, has, still has not fallen. So, yes, they, they're blockading the, the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, but they're by no means in control of, of the sort of southern coastal littoral. Um, and I don't think they, they have the capacity to take control of that.
0: Well, Margaret Weiss, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Sure, anytime, Ian.
0: Thanks a lot. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Weiss, who's a news director at New Lines magazine, who has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel Hell Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of Menace of Unreality, How Russia's Weaponized Information, Culture and Money, and co-authored the New York Times bestseller ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. And his latest article at New Lines magazine is exclusive. Sergei Lavrov and Oleg Deripaska Travelled with Sex workers to Japan in 2018. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the fallout from the taped conversations between House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and the Republican leadership that reveal a completely different picture from the public face of the groveling fealty GOP leaders feel they must show to Trump while privately despising him. And joining us now is Tom Lobianco, who is a national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly Washington correspondent for Business Insider who covered Trump and the Republican Party, a longtime reporter who has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN and the Indianapolis Star. He's also covered the Trump-Russia investigation, the White House and Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign and is the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. And his latest article at Yahoo News is... Ohio Republicans pick sides as primary battle for U.S. Senate race enters final stretch. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Lobianko.
2: Thanks, Ian. Good to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And on Saturday night, you were at the rally where Donald Trump endorsed J.D. Vance, who was being financed by the Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel. So did he mention anything about Kevin McCarthy's phone call which we all heard did he did he get into that i mean he was talking about washing machines and not having enough water and how he had reversed a biden's rule that stopped you from using enough water to wash your dishes and made an appeal to the audience for god's sake you know let's have some water to wash our dishes what else what else did he say <laughs> yeah the uh, the water thing that was a
2: big mess um so big that it. it appears to have washed out any mention of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, nice. I didn't hear anything.
0: <laughs> so, J.D. Vance was only on the stage with you for about two minutes, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, that was super interesting. I mean, you know, the thing we were watching for out here, I think, you know, most of most, us most in, in the press court, um, you know, in the political class, you know, every, you know. Uh, the operative world, everyone, everyone trying to figure out what's going to happen in this primary. You know, and obviously this is what we're all trying to test right now we're trying to figure out is like, you know, how powerful is Trump now within the Republican Party? Because that sure seems to have waned quite a bit. And this this one is a really good gauge of, um, of that in large part because of the number of Republicans who are huge Trump supporters who just broke with him over this J.D. Vance endorsement. So, you know, what, there's a lot of confusion right now across the different, like across the span of Republican campaigns, Republican operatives, even amongst the voters. Um, so, you know, this thing is really still up in the air. And again, the central thing here is as a test of Trump's power within the party. So, oh, you know, I presumably will know by May 3rd or after May 3rd what's going on with that. But there's still a ton of confusion here right now.
0: So, Tom LaBianca, in these tapes of these phone calls that McCarthy made, and he made several of them, of course, Mm -hmm. and they've been revealed in this new book by Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin of the New York Times, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. And they were basically around the 8th of January, the 10th, and the 11th. And reporters say that they've got far more on tape and stuff that will incriminate people at the very top of American politics, at the highest levels of American politics, which I'm assuming must mean that they've got Donald Trump on tape or maybe some other Republicans as well, like Mitch McConnell. But at least it seemed likely they've got Trump on tape. But one of the things that was interesting uh. in the call that McCarthy made with the leadership with Scalise and Liz Cheney, where he said... That let's not talk to Pence, and let's not talk about a pardon. They'd also they previously talked about the Twenty Sixth Amendment. So if they're going to be talking about a pardon, that means that they've assumed that a crime has taken place, haven't they?
2: Yeah, Uh, you know. Remember, there's well, number one. Let me just say that I I'm super excited for this book. You know, Jonathan Martin, Alexander Burns, two of the absolutely finest reporters in politics right now, and Yes, I, I believe they have plenty more. <laughs> They've been at it for quite a while, and these guys are super plugged in. So I, I'm super excited to find out you know, what they have on tape and, th- and how much more is packed in there. Uh, and I certainly pre-ordered already. Um, but in terms of you know, that period, and, and, you know, right after January 6th, um, it, there was a lot of confusion still, you know, remember these like these voices of conscience that came out and said, you know, this can this cannot stand. This is terrible. What happened on January 6th is awful. Um, And as we know, we've seen some of it before. We've seen it. We're starting to see a lot more of it now, I suspect. And when the January 6th committee comes out with its report, um, you know, which will I, sus- I suspect will have quite a bit more than what we heard in the, the Trump-Russia investigation, um, because there's just a lot more to work with. And they got a lot more cooperation in their investigation, not, not least of which was from Mark Meadows. Uh, there's just so much more to find out here. And there was a lot of confusion at that point. And, you know, remember, too, I mean, what was it? Like, I think around the, the middle to the end of January 2021 is when McCarthy goes down there to kiss the ring. And there was that period of about, you know, like two weeks or so where it's like, will they do the 25th Amendment? You know, Pence pretty quickly ruled it out, um, which, you know, pretty much put the kibosh on it. And, and you know, so of course, a lot, quite a few members of the of the cabinet uh, resigned. And remember that it, uh, Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, Elaine Chao, uh, resigned as a result of this. So. You know, you didn't have the numbers it looked like practically or physically to enact the 25th Amendment. And then, you know, the question kind of turned to, all right, what about this, the, the, the second impeachment of Trump? You know, how would that play out? And, you know, obviously we saw how it played out, quite a few votes in the Senate from Senate Republicans in support of uh, of a conviction in the trial of, of Trump, um, but not enough. And not, you know, again, you know, McConnell gets up and gives a speech. Uh, you know, about how this is terrible. This is awful. We can't let it happen, but it's not our place to convict the president. He's about to leave. This is, you know, we, we shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, there's still a lot of confusion. I, I think, I mean, at least as somebody, you know, covers this bit, there's, we still have a lot yet to see about who is involved in this, what, how far, as you, as you said here, you know, how far up the chain did that go? Um, Trump defense and the and certainly what you've seen from other uh, uh, folks like uh, the, uh, the Alex Jones and uh, uh, some of the other ones like Ali Alexander the 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 defense has typically been uh, that oh well you know we wanted a peaceable protest uh, we did not plan to sack the Capitol we did not instigate violence we never called for violence um, but there was quite a bit of planning ahead of time and you know. with each additional revelation, it just builds up new evidence. So, you know, do we know everything at this point? Certainly not. Uh, We're going to find out a lot more, though, probably pretty soon.
0: Well, we might find out more from Alex Jones. Uh, He is asking for immunity, a deal with the January 6th committee, and now that we know that Pat Cipollone has already talked to them, and Ali Alexander, apparently, is also insisting in the investigation. So, there seems to be an interesting enough of uh, Fox News are, or the Murdochs, I think, uh, pushing this interview that Piers Morgan did with mm. uh, Trump, where Trump has a meltdown and walks off. So that's, yeah. a, that's a little strange, isn't it? It looks like maybe uh, Murdoch is, <laughs> is trying to expiate for helping promote Trump in the first place.
2: Yeah, uh, you know the the flips that have been happening have been really astounding. You know, I think uh, if, if you mentioned there, but yeah, also Ali Alexander, uh, he also is cooperating now. I saw, um, a, a, please check me on this, but I believe also uh, Enrique Tarrio, uh, um, the uh, the members of the uh, the white nationalist group that was involved in this, uh, the Proud Boys, he has been cooperating. You you know, remember too, we also have a serious Justice Department criminal investigation underway. Um, you know, building small, starting with, you know, the people getting these 45-day, 90-day sentences for things like trespass, criminal trespassing, destruction of property, items like that. But they seem to be building up. And, you know, the other thing to point out here, too, is you hear this um, from from some of the Democrats within the the House uh, dealing with this. You do hear a little bit of frustration uh, with the Justice Department that, you know, maybe Merrick Garland, the attorney general, is not moving fast enough on this. Um, and, you know, remember, too, uh, the expectation is that the Republicans are more than likely to take the House in November, uh, which will more than likely, well, there's a pretty good chance they'll kick up an impeachment of Biden. Um, that's a good, like, good likelihood. I hear that talked about uh, among my Republican sources. And I think that there's a lot of tension around this right now, but the, Justice Department, based on everything that we see, and again, there's a, a super close hold on these things, but with each public revelation, they seem to be building their way to the top. Um, and, and where do you go from there, right? Like, what does that do? You know, the, I think it's the uh, seditious uh, conspiracy charges um, they've now been uh, uh, working on. that. This is new territory. I mean, obviously, uh, this is the first time in American history that the U.S. Capitol was sacked by American citizens uh, in, a, presumably, the attempted coup. So, and, you know, hopefully we don't have another one of those. Um, sure. It was frightening, to say the least. Uh, so,
0: so what do you think, though, in terms of, uh, you mentioned that the Republicans are, are going to take over, and that seems to be the conventional wisdom in November, take over the House. I mean, how is Kevin McCarthy going to survive uh, this obvious record of flagrant hypocrisy? Well, you know, flagrant hypocrisy? You know, sorry, I mean, yeah. he even call, he's even calling for people like Lauren Bobbitt to be taken off Twitter and Facebook. I mean, uh, you know, he's, he's breaking all of the Republican taboos in private, but in public, he contradicts himself totally.
2: Well, and, you know, McCarthy looks poised to be the speaker. And again, you know, the, the response that we've seen from the House Republicans uh, in, in response to these latest revelations is uh, kind of a shrug. You know, they still seem to be with him. Um, you know, we, you know, he tried in 2015. He lost. Um, he's trying again. Um, Trump, obviously, <laughs> doesn't seem to mind. You um, almost seem to laugh it off, um, which is kind of that's your signal, right? To the Republicans, the House Republicans is like, all right, you know, move on. Um, McCarthy more than likely to be speaker. Um, and then, so, okay, what happens with the January 6th investigation? And, you know, a couple of us got to ask him that question a couple weeks ago. And he said that, you know, what, what they're likely to focus on is the, the quote, the failures of the Capitol police in this. And what was Nancy Pelosi's role in this? So, you know, the, the Republicans have already said what they're going to focus on. So they'll probably repurpose the January 6th committee. Um, you know, again, assuming that it stays in place, uh, you know, as the, um, uh, Zoe Lofgren of California, a member of the committee, asked her um, about their uh, their time constraint on this um, a couple weeks ago. And she made a really good point, um, very salient here, that, you know, every committee, a select committee like that, when it's impaneled, it only runs the course of a, a full session of Congress, which is two years. So even if, you know, you would have to basically re-impanel you'd have to re, you know, reappoint the committee. And it does sound like there will be something to that effect. There will be some sort of, like, counter January 6th investigation, you know, not unlike what Devin Nunes did uh, with the, the House Russia investigation, you know, running of a, running a, like a counter narrative to support Trump in that case. Uh, so, I mean, that's, I mean, they've told us the playbook. So it's, that's a pretty good expectation of what, what will happen next year.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us. I'm still astounded at how both McConnell and McCarthy and and these other Republican leaders in private, were they had their moment to dump Trump just after January the 6th, and they seemed to be really absolutely certain about it, and then it just all fizzled away, and now they're all supplicants. It's a weird moment in American politics, and I'm sure historians are going to look at it for many uh, decades to come.
2: You know, one, you know, to that point, one quick thought here. Um, I've actually talked with a couple of former uh, Trump officials, Trump White House officials with that question. A number of them, at least who I've talked to, told me that they saw that as the best exit ramp from Trump. That was their best opportunity and supreme disappointment in McCarthy in this case. Um, So, yeah, you know, you see that. But again, in private on background never willing to put their names on top of it um so yeah it's you know and again back to jd vance and this endorsement we're all waiting and tested you know to see the test of the power everybody's waiting to see where things are right now so yes it's a huge question in the air and you know some serious potential threats for american democracy
0: well tom lobianka i thank you so much for joining us here today
2: Thank you, and good to be with you.
0: Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Tom LaBianca, who is national politics reporter for Yahoo News and formerly Washington correspondent for Business Insider. He covered Trump and the Republican Party. a Longtime reporter, he's covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star. He also covered the Trump Russia investigation, in the White House, and Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, and is the author of *Party and Power: Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House*. And his latest article at Yahoo News is "Ohio Republicans Pick." as primary battle for U.S Senate race enters final stretch we're going to take a brief station break we're back with an update on the French presidential elections and we're looking to the shakeup among streaming services with Netflix projected to lose another 2 million subscribers in the next quarter as its market cap shrinks from 300 billion in November to 97 billion today. Makes me glad that I'm Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Paris is David Andelman, a contributor to CNN, twice winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a chevalier of the French Legion of Honour. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the End of Wars That Might Still Happen. Formerly a correspondent for the New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, he runs the Substack blog Andelman Unleashed, where he has been covering the French election. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Andelman.
3: By having me, again. glad to be back.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, and the polls close in uh, two hours from now, when we're recording, before we go on the air. So it actually, they'll close when we go on the air today. And what I'm hearing, and you're there, so you will have set me straight, is that there's been a low turnout, and I'm assuming that a low turnout, would that mean that the left is not voting, which is the big concern, that Mélenchon's left uh, will not show up?
3: You, you hit the nail right on the head, actually, and the, um, the, the a low turnout would be not good for uh, Macron. Um, how bad that turnout is going to be is not yet clear. Uh, right now they're talking about, say, two percentage points uh, below what it was at this point at um uh, at 5 p.m., 5 p.m. is the last uh, local time. Is the last uh, time that the Ministry of the Interior gives um, um, any kind of results like that. It was showing about two percent below what it was five years ago. <laughs> that, of course, was when um, uh, that, of course, was when um, uh, Macron won a, a substantial, like 66-34 percent um, uh, victory over uh, the first time that the two of them, um, uh, Macron and Le Pen, uh, went head to head. So he could lose some of that. There's no question about he will lose some of that. The question is how much. The other slightly disquieting um, factoid is that the um, the overseas territories, a lot of them, are now finished um, voting actually, and 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 Le Pen has um, has won substantially in in most of them, um, and she did not; she lost in all of them the last time around. Now that doesn't necessarily again mean something, mainly because um, she has been suggesting some changes in the relationships with those territories that are, are really really quite impractical, and that Macron simply hasn't bought into. So. There's still a lot of there's a lot of water to go under that bridge.
0: Well, Melanchon, of course, came in third, but a pretty close third, did he not? In the the runoff,
3: right, about two percentage points behind, um, actually behind Le Pen, and actually there was more of a gap between, believe it or not, between uh, Macron and Le Pen than there was between Le Pen and Melanchon. So he had a substantial part of the, especially the youth vote and he really took some of the major cities he took marseille um overwhelmingly uh, in fact that's where um uh, that's where macron went to wind up his um uh, his his campaign uh, a, a day or so ago and and he what he told the, the people in marseille was look i i'm i'm your kind of president i really believe deeply in the environment and that's something that um, that's something that melanchon's people believe strongly in uh, he's also uh, he was obviously going for the um uh, the the ecology vote. There was an ecology candidate, a green candidate, Yannick Jadot, who got about eight percent of the vote. So, getting that that vote in its entirety would be would be a, a big boost for uh, for Macron. It, it really is a question of just how the 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 Mélenchon people, uh, how they fold, how much of them simply sit on their hands. There is another there is another tweak that you can make to the uh, to your voting in, in in France. By the way, you can vote blank, which is to say. All voting in France is done by hand, believe it or not, with paper ballots. You take a a piece of paper with the the name of your candidate on it. You put it in an envelope. You put the envelope in the ballot box. At the end of the day, they open the ballot box. They open the envelopes. They count the votes. If there is a blank vote in there, it's counted as a vote. That is to say, you voted um, so that you can show eventually that you voted in every presidential election or what have you. But your vote didn't count. So that's something that people are concerned about. That the protest vote against Macron may be higher than people had counted on, and that's um, that. That is another that's another that's another hill he has to climb.
0: But apparently, he has in his in his tenure, his recent tenure, he has not. He's reached out to the right as opposed to reaching out to the left. I mean, is that a simple explanation for the problems he might have with uh, Melanchon's voters?
3: He has. He has been seen. To- Out to a degree to the right. Look, he's the principal problem is he's seen as kind of an arrogant Rothschild banker. He worked for the bank Rothschild before he came to office here, and and some of that arrogance still comes through. He tried very very hard, especially during his one and only debate with Le Pen on Wednesday last Wednesday night, uh, to to give a to present a more you know a a more congenial a, a a more favorable image of himself as kind of a man of the people. He doesn't come across as a manager. He's not a man of the people. Let's face it. Um, he's an he's an anarchy. He's a, he went to the equivalent of the um, you know uh, Harvard College and, and Yale Law School or whatever in um, in Paris. Um, and that's what he. That's who he is. But he's someone who really understands how this country works. He understands how to pay for things, and that's the one thing he really needed to get across. That that um, Le Pen's concepts will not be. They're not feasible. Uh, she has never showed how she can pay for. It. Cutting the sales tax, for instance, from twenty percent back to five percent. I mean, it's just—it is ludicrous. Some of the ideas that she has in, in financial terms. What's also ludicrous is the fact that, uh, you know, she is she's very close to Vladimir Putin, and she's talked about pulling uh, France out of um, uh, out of NATO, uh, the NATO alliance, and and um, she's questioned about France's the way France um, participates in the European Union. All of these are are, are very unsettling to a lot of people. A lot of people in Washington, too, frankly, are watching that very closely.
0: Well, it would be a catastrophe, would it not, for Europe, or Western Europe, for her to get elected in the middle of this war with Ukraine? I mean, Putin's already peeled off Viktor Orban in Hungary, and that's, you know, I mean, the Ukrainians, Zelensky has made it clear. He said, "Victor, which side are you on, you know? So the idea of France also becoming pro-Putin would be a huge blow to NATO, would it not?
3: Oh, it would certainly be. It certainly would be. And and in fact, um, uh, she is uh, she is very close. Le Pen is very close to Orbán, as it turns out. Uh, Le Mon had a very interesting uh, editorial, their lead editorial, which was an a, an, an unequivocal endorsement of um, of um, Macron. Le Monde being the leading newspaper really in France, their editor in chief said, uh, "You know, France should not be likened to um, Hungary with ten million people, and France is sixty million people, being one of the." You know, really, the leadership uh, nations in Europe, uh, we can't allow this to happen you know, in our country. But there are a lot of people here who, A, aren't so concerned about that, and B, are much, much more concerned about purchasing power, inflation, cost of living, taxes, retirement age, all things that Le Pen has said, some very, very favorable ideas, has very favorable ideas about some plans that she wants to, wants to implement. The question, again, is can they work? And they probably can't. The result is that France could very well go the way of Britain since Brexit, which has not necessarily been the best for the British people.
0: Well, you would think that that would be a, an example of a path not to take.
3: You would think, but you know, it's interesting that when you get out of Paris or outside of some some of the main cities, which is the is called La France Profonde, Deep France, that's where she is. Her, that's where she is the strongest, and there are a lot of people there who go and vote. They don't go off on ski holidays as, you know, much of, for much of the metropolitan areas of France have in this time of year. The school holidays just began the, the other week, last week. So, you know, a lot of her people are very, very committed to voting, and they will vote for her. So when you see that, uh, you know, the, the, the percentage of people who vote has gone down, um, a lot of those are, are Macron voters. Now, all of this is just, let me put this in perspective. She went into this with a 10 percentage point difference in most, virtually every poll um, in France, anywhere from, you know, 8% to 13% in the polls. So that's a pretty big hill she has to climb as well. And, um, you know, most people, most most reasonable people who really care about this country um, are saying, let's hope that, you know, let's hope he can climb it and she can't.
0: Well, she's apparently done a lot better than she did the last time around where she got pretty thoroughly drubbed. How did she do in the, um, the one and only debate, which, by the way, seemed like a really good format compared to the, what, what we have here in the United States? And by the way, the Republicans now aren't even going to participate in the presidential debates anymore. So that well, in itself is a Remember, there was disgrace. only one
3: debate here, and there was no debate at all in the, uh, before the 12-person, the was well, essentially it was the primary, the first round in France, Macron refused to participate in the debate no french no existing uh, sitting french president has ever participated in the first round debate incidentally here ever so he did participate in this the format was marvelous it's something that the united states could certainly take a a, a very good um uh, leaf out of that book i have to say there is a there's a clock in front of each person each of the two candidates which shows exactly how much time they've had on the air during this this period and the moderators the two moderators one from one french channel one from the other major French channel, they hew very carefully to that. They say, well, now you've had, you've had more than your share, um, Marine. Let's let um, the president have something to say. So it, it was very good. And and Macron handled himself very effectively, I think. His one problem was, in my view, and I watched the entire almost three-hour debate uh, in French, by the way, um, but it's, um, of course, it takes base in French. Um, Macron had a great deal of difficulty, I think, in explaining to, you know, Jacques Sixpack, if you will, uh, how exactly the the, the the numbers of Marine Le Pen don't work. So he had all the numbers. They just weren't very effectively explained for the average person. A person who graduated, you know, a Harvard Business School would have no prob- problem understanding it. All he really had to say was, Marine, how are you going to pay for this? It's not going to work. They cut taxes from 20 percent to 5 percent. You say that nobody under the age of thirty years old even has to pay any income taxes at all. How is that going? To, how are you going to pay for that? He never asked that direct question, and it seemed to me that that's where, if there was, if he had a failing during this debate, and, and by the way, I think he was probably skewed in his favor, the, the debate in the end. Sure. If there was one failure, it was his failure to really present himself as the the rational individual who can really make this country continue to work.
0: Well, David, uh, thank you for giving us an update. With well, fingers crossed, uh, I know it's not just in France people are concerned, but uh, here in the United States, as you pointed out, there's a great deal of anxiety uh, about the idea of Le-, of Le Pen becoming the president of France. And, and thanks for joining us.
3: No, absolutely. And by the way, stay tuned for, uh, for June. June is when the national um, the parliamentary elections take place. And that could be, as it turns out, very, very important, depending on what happens tonight.
0: Right, and Meloshad is making a move to become the prime minister, so that yes. was c- certainly worth watching, and. Again, I've been speaking with David Andelman, who's a contributor to CNN, a twice-winner of the Deadline Club Award, and a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor. He's the author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919 and the Price We Pay Today, and A Red Line in the Sand, Diplomacy Strategy and the History of Wars That Might Still Happen. Formerly a correspondent for The New York Times and CBS News in Europe and Asia, he runs the substack blog Andelman Unleashed, where he has been covering the French election. And joining us now, Jonathan Tappan, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Wim Wenders, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He was the founder of Entertainer, the first streaming video on-demand platform in 1996, and currently sits on the boards of the Authors Guild, Americana Music Association, and Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's Council on Technology and Innovation. And he is the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book is The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Taplin.
4: Good to be here, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And what's happening with the streaming services? Uh, Netflix is projected to lose another 2 million subscribers, having lost over 200,000, and their market capitalization has shrunk from 300 billion in November to less than 97 billion today. And we could also talk about CNN Plus and Paramount Plus, but let's start with Netflix. Is there something going on with this streaming model?
4: Well, there's simply too many streaming services for the market. There, There's actually 200 streaming services in the United States. There are many you've probably never heard of, like Philo, and Fubo, and VidGo, and WWE, and PokerGo, and TV. I mean, it's goes on and on and it's absurd and they're all uh, gonna not survive obviously but but Netflix problems is is very specific uh, Netflix had uh, in 2014 about 1 billion dollars of debt today it has more than 16 billion dollars of debt so in, in just you know, a very short time, it took on this huge amount of debt in order to produce a lot of original programming. The problem is that most of that debt is what we call junk debt, which carries a fairly high interest rate. And obviously as interest rates are rising, it gets worse. So junk bonds work fine if companies are growing rapidly. But if companies start to shrink, then you enter into what investment bankers, and I was one in the 80s, call a death spiral, which is that the, the amount of cash flow cannot carry both the debt and the cost to make a whole lot of new programming. And, you know, some analysts on Wall Street estimate that if Netflix lost 4% of its subs, it could enter into that kind of death spiral. And, and so they're going to have to cut back the amount of original programming they do. And at the same time, they have some very, very well capitalized rivals. I mean, if you look at Disney, often we, we think about thing, something called a debt to equity ratio in, in terms of what the health of a company is. So Disney has equity of about $93 billion and has debt of about $50 billion. Netflix has equity of about $15 billion and has debt of $15, 16000000000 billion. So, you know, Netflix is, is not well capitalized compared to the big companies that are its rivals. And so it's, it's going to have some problems.
0: But also, Disney, Amazon, and Apple are much more diversified, aren't they? They have other businesses as well.
4: Absolutely. You know, I'm old enough to remember that when I first came into the movie business in the early 70s with Mean Streets, most of the major studios were bankrupt. 20th Century Fox had to sell off the back lot, now what we call Century City, in order to make the payroll. And so... And that's because they had only one business, the movie business. Today, companies like Disney have many, many other businesses. And needless to say, so does Amazon and Apple and others that are rivals to Netflix. So you're totally right that Netflix having only one business is very vulnerable to a downturn.
0: But it's also the movie business has changed as a result of COVID. I don't know that... People are going back to the theaters and certainly not in the numbers pre-COVID. And I'm wondering how that business model is surviving the movie theaters themselves. And it's always been a little strange to see Netflix, for example, advertising so heavily to win Academy Awards when its product ends up on television, not on movie screens. And they've also changed the business model for Hollywood, haven't they? They've given big salaries to movie stars to attract them, but no back end. Is that a, a change that's going to also persist with the what's left of the other movie producers?
4: I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think if you look at Disney's big franchise, which is Marvel, and maybe even Pixar and, and the Star Wars franchises, they're going to go back to using the theaters as the premier way of introducing those movies. And, you know, some recent results from Spider-Man and others seem to say that if you have something that's only in the theaters, the young people will still come out and go to the theaters. And Netflix, of course, doesn't have that ability to earn 150, 200, 300 million in two weeks from from movie theaters. So my sense is that this could get worse for um, Netflix. Imagine if, if Disney put Hulu and ESPN Plus together in one service for one low price, or let's say that the new Warner Brothers Discovery company puts HBO Max, Discovery, Turner Sports, and CNN all into one streaming service and sets them at a reasonably low price. I would think that would make more problems for Netflix rather than less. In other words, I think there would be more competition. And then obviously Netflix cited competition as one of the big problems aside from the fact that for many years they never stopped people from sharing their password with their whole family and their close friends. So, uh, You know, that's probably another big problem for them.
0: Right, but CNN Plus, their subscription service, which was launched just at the end of March, uh, they're shutting it down on April the 30th. And apparently it's happened before Warner Media merged with Discovery. And now, of course, the, the Discovery people are basically saying it didn't make any sense, which... As you just pointed out, if they add all of the other assets that they have uh, into a new streaming service, it makes a lot more sense than CNN Plus, doesn't it?
4: Yeah. I mean, just think of the economics. A lot of this came about because of what was known as cord cutting. So, I had a, so let's say I had a cable service that was costing me $120 a month, and it probably had 300 channels, uh, 280 of which I never watched. And so I said, well, screw that. I'm going to cut the cord and I'm going to just pay $45 for broadband. And now I start adding these services and if I add five services at $12 a month, I'm right back where I was before, you know, in terms of, you know, before I cut the cord, I'm spending the exact same amount on TV every month and and I just don't think that's going to be sustainable, especially if there's an economic downturn. So just in the last
0: couple of minutes here, I wanted to comment on President Obama's speech uh, at Stanford University on Thursday, since uh, you were the first to alert the public about the problems that Facebook and uh, these other tech monopolies have imposed upon our society and culture. At Stanford, President Obama said that Silicon Valley is turbocharging some of humanity's worst impulses, and it's one one of the biggest reasons for the weakening of democracy is the profound change that has taken place in how we communicate and consume information. He also went on to talk about something that I've been following for some time, and that is how his great regret is that he didn't go after the Russian misinformation when it was happening in 2016 as they were interfering uh, to hurt Hillary Clinton and help elect Donald Trump. He says, what still nags me is my failure to appreciate at the time just how susceptible we had become to lies and conspiracy theories. What did you make of uh, Barack Obama's speech?
4: Well, you know, I I think this is a kind of Paul on the road to Damascus conversion. It's a little late, but I'm glad to have him on our side. You know, Quite frankly, two things seem important. He, he said uh, at a speech uh, two days before in Chicago, he said, I do think that there is a demand for crazy on the internet that we have to t- grapple with. This notion of a demand for crazy is the whole core of the problem. Because as you have pointed out many times before, What gets Internet traffic on Facebook going is the craziest stuff you can possibly put up. In other words, what gets people, quote unquote, engaged is is nutcase stuff. It is, you know, QAnon. It's that kind of thing. And so that's really the core of the problem. Now, Obama did embrace something that I've been talking about with you for years, which is the Section 230 notion that these companies have been given a liability safe harbor. That is that Facebook and Twitter and everybody do not take any responsibility for the content that is on their servers. And Obama has said that that needs to change. That if they had to worry about liability for people putting stuff that's just totally untrue and endangering people's lives, like lies about COVID or things like that, that they would be much more rigorous in moderating the content on their services. So I think this will be good. I mean, I'm also skeptical um, in the sense that I started talking about this in 2016 and here we are, a lot later and nothing has changed not a single law has been passed not a right. se- and, and what's even
0: worse is that uh, Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter and bring back Trump so exactly. the battle is so not it,
4: it could get worse before it gets better
0: well Jonathan Taplin I thank you very much for joining us here today
4: my pleasure Ian
0: and again, I mean speak with Jonathan Taplin, who's an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Wim Wenders, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He's the founder of The Entertainer, the first streaming video on-demand platform in 1996, and currently sits on the boards of the Authors Guild, the Americana Music Association, and Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's Council on Technology and Innovation. And he's the author of Move Fast and Break Things How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book is The Magic Years Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate or publictruthmedia.org